Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM. Channel 127, welcome to Progress After Dark. Good evening to everybody out there on the West Coast, driving home in your vehicles. Hello to everybody else in the Middle and the East Coast. Welcome to Tell Me Everything, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. I'm John Fugel saying, it's going to be a really fun night, obviously, if you're like me and you spend your entire life waiting for debt ceiling fights, because that's so fun to talk about and brings out the best in everybody. It's been a really, really rich time. All night long, we're going to be taking your calls at 866-997-4748. There, there's, there's a lot we have to get to. Obviously, the debt ceiling bill is advancing towards a very tight vote in the House as we speak, as we both broadcast live and record. You know, we do both, right? People always write to me and say, hey, I want to come on your podcast. And I'm like, well, sorry, it's 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 a radio show that has a podcast. It's not a podcast. We are all both live. And hello to our evil army of the night. Everyone who listens live, we love when you guys call us at 866-997-GRIT. And hello to all the daywalkers who don't necessarily listen live at night, but listen the next day on demand on SiriusXM's app or on the John Fugelsang podcast. We love you guys especially. We love getting your emails. Uh, there's so much to get to right now. Mike Pence has announced his plan to be trounced by margin of error in 2024 polling. Chris Christie as well. I actually think Chris, people think I'm crazy. I, th- this whole it, this whole Republican field, it's what our friend Tina Dupuis likes to call the presidential loser industrial complex where people just run for president knowing they're not going to win but hey you got to sell a book or get higher public speaking fees or maybe get an ambassadorship or a cabinet position so they go ahead and run it's nice work if you can get it if you can fundraise enough to you know fly business class from debate to debate so chris christie and mike pence by the way uh, in other news, the U.S. is going to require all new cars to have automatic braking systems. So uh, there's good stuff, too. We have so much to get to. We've got a really great lineup tonight. The great Bob Seska will be with us shortly to talk all about, well, uh, the weird Republican fascination this year with beating up on uh, on pride events. I, I just saw our old friend Dave Rubin, who used to be, of course, on uh, on, on the channel OutCue uh, back before he became Tucker Carlson's uh, baby fascist pet gay. Uh, he put out a video today warning straight people about all the stuff they're going to be arrested for once Pride Month begins. Like, even the gay Republicans, even the gay Republicans are trying to sleep in the big house. It's it's embarrassing. Seska will help us make sense of out of it. Uh, Paul Wolf joins us. He is a terrific uh, author who has a new book about the corporate world. You see, DEI is getting so many headlines and we're hearing so much about how Republicans are worried. I, I don't know what they're most objecting to. The diversity or the equity or the inclusion. 
It's hard to guess what part of that corporate culture would most threaten our right-wing friends. I I don't know. Ask the totally not racist person in your life uh, why they fear diversity in the workplace. Uh, Paul Wolf is a uh, HR expert with 20 years of experience working in different corporations. And his book, Human Beings First, is all about how corporations are moving towards more empathetic, more expressive leadership. I've said for a long time the corporate world is, for all of its evils, the unsung hero in the civil rights movement, because corporations, when they realized, hey, uh, all these oppressed groups, why don't we market to them like they're actual people with money in a capitalist society who want to buy stuff? I'll always say when Ikea first showed an ad showing two gay men shopping for furniture together, it was breaking a glass ceiling in terms of reaching out to historically marginalized groups. And so I'm really, really excited to have someone who knows what he's talking about here tonight. Uh, Also, the great Max Burns joins us in hour number three to talk all about the debt deal. And uh, I don't know if you've heard, there's new Trump tapes. Yeah, Jack Smith has new tapes of Donald Trump bragging about the documents he has stolen. It's almost like he's a terrible person with no impulse control. Chris Hauselt, our executive producer, is not here tonight. He is still out sick. You can send him love at Moving Sideways on Twitter. Uh, The great Thea Harper is back from her vacation. We missed her so much. The great Sean Bertolo is helping us run this thing tonight. We are so glad to be blessed with such a great squad. And, of course, our most important guest is always all y'all. 866-997-4748. I'm a little out of breath. I just came from doing a fundraising show. They they asked me to go do stand-up at this um, venture capitalist company that is getting into uh, weed in New York City and the burgeoning New York City weed scene. And so there were local politicians there giving speeches about the cannabis industry and all the people it's employing. And, and I, 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 you know, here you live in New York, you don't know about any of this stuff. Here you live in New York, all you know is yesterday it was guys on the corner saying, smoke, smoke. Today it's every deli you walk into is trying to sell you weed. Have, have you heard about what's happened in New York? My God. Any shop you go in, anywhere you go. They, can, I, can I offer you some keef with that, sir? Do you want a vape pen? Could you, do you want some pre-roll joints? Can I give you some blunts? I'm like, let me be blunt. I'm I'm just here to buy dildos. What are you? Do, why why are you doing this? It's it's great to see we've come a long way. We were kids with a drug war. You remember the drug war when we were growing up, where where they always were telling you all the terrible things that weed will do to your brain. I I I, I can't recall any of it right now. But you 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 know the stuff they told us as kids. Weed makes you violent and lazy. Which never bothered me. I, I think making the violent people lazy is maybe the most effective anti-crime campaign you can think of. But but anyway, I, I made it. Just got back just in time. Thrilled to be here. Thrilled you're with us. We have some really great smart guests covering a lot of ground tonight. And we'd love to hear from you. 866. The homophobes are boycotting. <laughs> They're literally going to boycott uh, uh, Chick-fil-A now because Chick-fil-A has uh, DEI. Of course, it's morons. Your your lane is ready. 866-997-4748. Let's do a show. Let me begin with the great uh, Bernie Carrick, who used to be, um, you know, in charge of New York's police. And then we found out the depths of his corruption. The apartment at taxpayer expense he used for extramarital trysts at Ground Zero. You remember back when Rudy Giuliani first began to destroy his national profile? It was when George W. Bush was still president. And Rudy, who was mayor of America at that time, uh, Rudy told Bush that he should hire Bernie Carrick to be the head of Department of Homeland Security. And so they tried to. And then all of his corruption came out. And it made Bush look really bad. And Bernie Carrick went to jail. 
then Bernie Carrick came on our show. He'd been doing, you know, tax avoidance, and he went to jail for it. He came on our show a couple of years ago when we first started, and I'll never forget, because um, it was the anniversary of a Johnny Cash record, and Jorge was producing at the time, and Jorge didn't know Bernie Carrick's backstory, so he actually was playing Folsom Prison Blues as the lead-in song for Bernie Carrick's memoir about being a cop who went to jail. It, it, was, it was awkward. But anyway, Bernie Carrick, he's on Twitter now, and he just attacked Kevin McCarthy. I mean, a lot of Republicans are doing it. It's really in today. But as the debt ceiling negotiations swirl and fester, Bernie Carrick, of all people, tweeted out to Kevin McCarthy, you left the IRS agents to target Americans. You lied to the American people. <laughs> you know, you know, it's kind of funny. Why would Bernie Carrick want fewer IRS agents looking to catch tax criminals? The Republicans really like to lie about the Democrats and the IRS. When Barack Obama was president, you'll recall, they said the conservatives are being stalked and harassed by the IRS. Remember that whole story? Conservative PACs and political groups are being harassed by the IRS. They're shaking us down. And, and then you look into it and you realize, yeah, well, a lot of these political groups and 501c3s were pretending they weren't political to avoid paying taxes. And they were cheating all of us. They were robbing from all of us. If you are cheating on your taxes... Uh, and you are trying to avoid paying taxes because you say you're not a political group and then you are doing political work, you're a tax cheat. You're ripping off Republicans, you're ripping off Democrats, and you're ripping off that broad swath of America that is just proudly indifferent. You're ripping them off. So uh, the conservatives said, oh, they're attacking us. Now, in the reality, not a single conservative group was audited. Not a single conservative group was shut down. But the Republicans frame the entire narrative around, oh, they're trying to go after tax cheats, they're coming after us. And it worked, and Barack Obama backed down at the time. And it's ridiculous. Emerge America was a Texas-based liberal group. The IRS did audit them and did force them to reveal their donors. Emerge America did lose their tax-exempt status, but no conservatives for all their years of saying Barack Obama was harassing them. Well, now... Because we still have Democrats who are trying to get the rich to pay their fair share of taxes, but the IRS doesn't have enough people to do it because, I don't know if you know this, the rich can afford a lot of accountants and a lot of shell corporations. The rich can afford to hide their money 10 different ways. So Biden's big plan was we're going to try in the budget to get more IRS agents to go after the tax cheats. Biden fought for $80 billion in this debt ceiling negotiation that became a budget negotiation. He fought for $80 billion for the IRS, and then he compromised for $70 billion. <laughs> so now um, the IRS gets the greatest budget boost in its history to chase down rich tax cheats. $70 billion. Okay, Joe Biden compromised, and the right wing is furious about it. And let's be fair, progressives are angry as well. A lot of progressives are furious that Joe Biden negotiated this debt deal after promising not to. Elizabeth Warren said it rewards the hostage taking that the Republicans have gotten so damn good at. And on an even shittier level, it allowed Joe Manchin to stuff in a big pipeline favor for his fossil fuel pals that's completely corrupt and should come out of the final deal. They're furious about it. They have every reason to. But again, Joe Biden did something kind of smart. He kept saying, I'm not going to negotiate the debt ceiling. It's going to be clean. We're just going to do it like you did for Reagan. Yeah, for Reagan, for Bush, for Trump, we're just going to raise it. And of course, eventually, uh, because he wouldn't negotiate, people beat it Biden up. He gave in. He negotiated. And um, again, you know, he saved the hostage. 
the Republicans tried to take a hostage. But what Biden did along the way, it appears, was while he was pretending to let Kevin McCarthy negotiate the debt ceiling, Biden actually negotiated the budget. And that's what's fascinating. Republicans are furious over this. The hardliners are threatening revenge on McCarthy over this debt ceiling deal just to avoid a U.S. default. Most likely, someone may try to oust McCarthy as speaker in the next week or so. Ron DeSantis is piling all over this, saying how bad it was. But he, look, the vote's going on right now as we speak. And we know the Republican Party now was not afraid of a government shutdown. They love doing that. I bet you anything they'll try to do it next year to make Biden look bad. They're not afraid of shutting down the government. We've seen them do it many times. But turns out they have a red line. Generally, they don't want a debt default. Matt Gates might want a debt default. Lauren Boebert might want a debt default. They might think it sounds just great to collapse the world economy, to own the libs. You know who McCarthy listens to more than the slobbering goober wing of his party? Wall Street donors. And Wall Street donors have a lot more power over Kevin McCarthy than the Boebert caucus. They did not want to crash our entire economy. So, you know, Republicans are afraid of a debt default. And it seems like once Joe Biden knew that McCarthy was not actually willing to kill his hostage, he felt free to negotiate getting rid of the debt ceiling for the next couple of years, because that's what they did. I mean, the media keeps saying, oh, they raised it. They didn't raise it. Have you looked at this? They didn't raise it a few trillion and set a new limit for what it's going to be. No, this deal, Joe Biden got two years without a debt ceiling. They didn't set a new limit. Two years. So the rest of his first term, he doesn't have to worry about this again. And that's the real reason why so many Republicans are mad. Because they thought they were going to get to do this again in 10 months, in March of next year, and brutalize Joe Biden during his reelection campaign. It's supposed to happen. <laughs> Biden instead got it to two years, and he managed to negotiate the budget while letting McCarthy think he was strong-arming him into negotiating the debt ceiling. It's a budget deal, and it's a debt ceiling raise. And McCarthy caved. He caved so hard, there were miners trapped inside him. And now it's gotten pretty scary because it's not just about Kevin McCarthy looking bad. It's about what if too many Republicans rebel against this and it's a catastrophe for the world economy. Well, once again, guess who always rides to the rescue of these Republicans before they can trash this country? You guessed it. Uh, Democrats. That, that's my whole life. Republicans trash the economy. Democrats come and clean it up. I mean, they, trickle down ended. We got Clinton. Right. Bush Cheney ended. We got Obama. Comb over Caligula ended, we got Joe Biden. Not perfect, not as liberal as any of us would like, but they keep on cleaning up the mess. They are the fire department, and the original arsonists can't stop heckling them. So more than 50 Democrats stepped in this afternoon to allow McCarthy's debt ceiling compromise to advance to a final vote. After 29 Republicans broke with leadership and voted no, on the rule for a floor debate. It was kind of weird. Usually on these procedural votes, everyone votes with their parties, even if they oppose it. It's a procedural vote. But apparently Hakeem Jeffries was calling a lot of Democrats saying, would you be willing to contribute votes to this? You know, just just to, to give a yes so we can move it forward. They asked him if he'd cut a deal with Kevin McCarthy. And actually, Hakeem Jeffries didn't answer the question directly. He said Democrats had come to the rescue to avoid a dangerous default and help House Republicans get legislation over the finish line. They negotiated themselves. After an hour of debate, the House began voting on the final passage of the debt ceiling bill. Within the last hour, we will bring you updates as we hear them. But there you go. Once again, it's not just that Kevin McCarthy looks dumb. 
it's he is, and the other Republicans are, and they brought our economy to the brink of collapse for what? For theater, to impress the easily impressed. (laughs) It's going to be very interesting seeing how this plays out. We promise you, you will consistently get the best coverage you can get on SiriusXM Progress. And of course, (laughs) Bernie Carrick is here to make it all funny. We want to know what you guys think. We are going to be taking your calls all night at 866-997-4748. That's 866-997-GRIT. We have a lot of stuff to get to. Let us get to it right now. On the line, let me go to Brian in Oregon. Brian, thank you for your patience. Hello. John, I I realized last night, two things. I'll get to what I told Thea, but I realized that Biden... um, Thank God he's, you know, can you imagine how he'd be if he wasn't senile? Um, <laughs> if he wasn't senile? Yeah, well, everybody says that. I mean, the Republicans say he's senile. Oh, I know. He's so senile, and he keeps <laughs> outplaying them. He kicked Trump's ass in two debates. He got millions more votes. And again, he's brought us infrastructure they couldn't do. He got Mexico to pay for border security they couldn't do. Yeah, yeah, all he does is outplay them. I mean, what they're essentially saying is, oh, we're 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 too dumb to compete with a dementia patient who can't find his pants. I mean, exactly. that's well, that's their narrative. He, the other thing he's accomplished is he's taken the whole um, government shutdown off the table for at least till uh, over that. That's be the, maybe that the most brilliant part of this deal. Mo- maybe the most brilliant part of this deal. Joe Biden was going to have to go through all this again next year. Now he doesn't. Yeah, and, and either the debt ceiling and the bu- budget stuff. Is, mm-hmm. I mean, the budget's off till what September of uh, twenty four now too. Well, we'll see how 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 you know how much they're going to renegotiate budget details about this. I know Kevin McCarthy when he wakes up and realizes how badly he's been hosed is going to try to make a lot of noise and uh, thrash it together and try to make it seem like he's coming back for the. I mean, look at this point, Democrats are the reason he's going to stay Speaker of the House, and that's probably the deal they really cut. That let's just do this. Let's not embarrass our country in the eyes of the world because we can't get it together. And in exchange, Kevin, because you moron that you are allowed anyone in your caucus to call a vote to replace you with just one person voting for it then we'll protect you i guarantee that's what happened yeah it's got to be and um my other thought i was telling Thea about i think biden if i was biden i would take a page out of trump's book that he uh did with the uh taking military budget money for the wall and repurpose that for food stamps or child care stuff and uh, yeah. repurpose, because that's already now a precedent with Trump. I, love it. I think it went through the courts. It went through the courts many times. People forget, you know, no one wanted his stupid, racist, ineffective medieval wall. Like, no one wanted it except people who are confused by shiny things, right? Like, like ladders and shovels are things. The wall was never going to stop people from coming into this country. The majority of undocumented immigrants enter this country by overstaying their visas. They don't cross the border. But again, again, they don't care about the majority. This is all for the racists. It's oh, yeah. all for the white anxiety about brown people crossing the border. So that's why they do it. Yeah. And, and and they took money from the Pentagon eventually, from the Pentagon budget, budget not from yeah. the defense contractors. That's the money that would go to the troops. That's why last night when I was screaming about the increases in the Pentagon budget, because half of the budget already goes to private contractors. It does not improve the quality of life for our servicemen and women and their families. Does that How much that budget goes to guys like, you know... Um what was that, Blackwater, you know, Eric Prince's? Yeah, a lot of it. A lot of mercenary it. Mercenary army guys we hire, our, our yeah. army hire. These assholes get paid more than our military guys. 
Yeah, exactly. Much more. They get better benefits than our military guys. They're private. Our military is socialist. They're private. That's the racket. Yeah, it's something. Well, I guess (laughs) I guess I'm talked out. (laughs) Well, hey, I appreciate it, Brian. Thank you so much for the call. Let me go to our friend Marie in Atlanta. Hello, counselor. Welcome. Hello, John. Thanks for taking my call. Hi. Um, (laughs) In his most recent unhinged, clearly uninformed rant, um, apparently Trump has uh, promised to, by executive order, um, get rid of the 14th Amendment. (laughs) Isn't it great that he can do that? Isn't it great that a president can change the Constitution by executive order? Who knew? Yeah, that whole two-thirds voting. Apparently, if we would just have an executive order that says that the Women's Rights Amendment that had been actually within one state of having been uh, been adopted. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. We just need Biden to just declare it so. Make it so. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Make it so. Now, now, let me ask you a question. You, you, you think it was Stephen Miller who wrote that talking point for Trump to share? Like, do you think the person who wrote that little bit of grandstanding knows that it's impossible and just gave it to Trump anyway? Because, again... Trump just, as much as he's a liar, we have to point out he's also equally a bullshitter. A liar will say things that they know to be false, and a bullshitter will say things whether they know it's true or not. And Trump does both equally. And it sounds like Stephen Miller said, hey, promise you'll get rid of birthright citizenship again. And Trump came out and did it, and moron racists cheer it because they don't know that's not how the country works. Well, more important than that, I, I think that this is a talking point that somebody probably even smarter than Stephen Miller came up with, the reason being... Birthright citizenship um, is in Section 1 of the 14th Amendment, and it prohibits the states from making laws that abridge the privileges and immunity section. Um, the, life, the, the right to life, liberty, or property without due process can't take that away, and equal protection. Section 2 is representational apportionment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, section 3 is senators, congressmen, or elected president or vice presidents not being able to hold office, civil or military, having mm. previously taken an oath and having violated that oath or engaging in insurrection or rebellion, meaning he wouldn't, potentially he wouldn't be able to serve under that section. He wants to get rid of it by executive order. Right. Uh, section it's 4 crazy. is the validity of the public debt. So mm-hmm. when he says... You know, I want to get rid of, I will order the abolishment of the 14th Amendment and birthright citizenship. (laughs) Uh, It's a con. He's focusing on one part because the idiot racists will say, yeah, I'm for that. And they don't realize all the other crap that goes with it. That's it. Yeah. But again, that's why they're idiot racists, because they're so easy to manipulate for votes. And again, I mean, Bob Dylan explained all of this in the song Only a Pawn in Their Game. You know, the poor white remains in the caboose of the train, but it ain't him to blame. He's only a pawn in their game. That's it. The hate sells. I mean, I mean, but again, Marie, do you think this will ever be a problem? Even if Trump were to be reelected, this is just the sort of thing that like so much else of his agenda, he just falsely promises would be like infrastructure for him. He's he would never actually do it or he would try to do it and then just claim to be victimized because uh, the dead founding fathers wouldn't let him. Oh, you mean like all of those promises that were made in the 2022 midterms about, you know, inflation and the Republicans did nothing about They, they I'm sorry to say it. They put out the talking points that get the rubes to the polls, 
Exactly. And then Fox News and those outlets take over for them exactly. talking about those things and ginning up the hate and the anger and this and that and the other so that they don't understand you voted for something they're not even doing anything about. But the Republicans so, have done so much, though, about border safety. They've done so much ab- <laughs> about helping our troops. They've done so much about mental health for all these people with guns. I mean, the Republicans, let's be honest, like they they really have done a lot in terms of talking about stuff they're never going to actually do. We have to respect exactly. that. Yeah, good God, Marie. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. I just wanted to point that out. I always appreciate you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for classing up our show, Counselor. we got to take a break. Uh, we'll be right back in just a moment with the great Bob Seska and an update on this vote. We have some movement, people. Don't go away. We are at 866-997-4748. We want to hear your thoughts on everything happening in pop culture and politics all night long. This is Progress After Dark. We'll be right back. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hey, everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions have honest conversations, just keeping it real and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on, because you know I love it when you do. This just in, the bill has passed the House. The House of Representatives has voted to pass the negotiated debt ceiling bill. I'm, I'm calling it, hey, let's avoid a catastrophic default we don't need to have bill. Has to go to the Senate now, then get a signature from Joe Biden. But the national debt limit will be suspended until 2025. I swear to God, I don't know how that old man keeps on negotiating this well, but he sure does it. And if you heard Biden earlier today when he was talking to the reporters, he actually said, he's like, I'm not going to tell you guys anything. It was yesterday. He said, I'm not going to tell you guys anything. He says, if I brag about it, then then it's not going to go well. So I'm not going to speak about how I negotiated. And it's he's like, that's why you're not good negotiators. Holy crap. This old guy's putting the rest of us to shame. So if you're just tuning in, uh, the update is in. The House has passed the negotiating debt ceiling bill. It is going to Joe Biden's desk. Not bad. On the 102-year anniversary of white supremacists massacring the Black Wall in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
Dark Brandon does it again. Republicans, 149 yays, 71 nays. Democrats, um, 165 yays. Democrats get the job done. Right now for more. Hear myself twice. Let's go to someone smarter and more moral and more informed and better looking than me. I know it's not hard to find. It's a vast pool. In this case, it's the great Bob Sesco, one of our favorite pundits and podcasters. Maybe you fell in love with his columns in Salon. Maybe you fell in love with his appearances on Stephanie Miller. Bob hosts the Bob Sesco Show, one of the best podcasts you can hear, mixing politics and music. He's hipper than us in every way. Mr. Sesco, happy debt ceiling night to you. Welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's You know what? It's actually very much worth celebrating i think this is uh outstanding news and once again you, you never uh, should underestimate dark brandon i mean this guy got it done once again the the guy who's supposed to be one foot in the grave the guy who's clearly suffering from myriad cognitive Nearly issues dementia. obviously to, well, because, obviously he can he's feeble yeah. he can barely move around the house bob i mean yeah it, it's it's just incredible how he keeps pantsing the republicans and uh getting them to acquiesce to things and you know what i i do actually want to credit something that maybe the president didn't have anything to do with or he might have and that is all of the rumoring and uh, discussion behind the scenes or on social media, in that, for that matter, about the 14th Amendment. I think yes. that that discussion may have played a bigger role in this than we know, because it was kind of this, I don't know, like this cartoon anvil hanging over Kevin McCarthy's head <laughs> that he wasn't sure. Maybe Joe Biden could do it. Maybe he won't. I mean, Joe Biden publicly saying, and I think the White House was saying that they don't really or they didn't have really any intention of using the 14th Amendment to do that. But he the very thought of it. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The the very idea of it gave, uh, I think, the White House a lot of leverage on this. The Democrats, a lot of leverage, because that's something that they could always do. And you know what? Nothing to lose in that situation, because if a Republican we talked about this last week, if a Republican followed suit and did the same thing, invoking the 14th Amendment to lift the debt ceiling, then that's exactly what Democrats want. That's what we all want. We want this to no longer be an issue. We want this to no longer be a threat, uh, a hostage-taking maneuver. So if it were to go away, that'd be great. But I think the idea of it may have convinced Kevin McCarthy to take what he could get and run away, run out from under, (laughs) under the weight of that anvil. Well, that and the fact that he knew that the Democratic Party would save the economy and save his lousy job i mean that was yeah. the other big thing in the room because I, I we will learn someday years from now mr sesco when someone writes a book about the deal hakeem jeffries made with mccarthy guaranteeing that if they try if his own caucus tried to throw him out the democrats would let him keep his job but you know when you talk about the leverage that biden had going into this knowing he could just do the 14th Amendment because it commands him to. Um, The leverage was so great that Biden, you know, you you could say misjudged it early on, thinking he could come out and say, I'm not going to negotiate the debt ceiling, just just the budget, not the debt ceiling. And Mm -hmm. that got him a lot of heat from both sides for doing it. But what about the leverage that McCarthy gave up when when he agreed (laughs) to a two year 
debt ceiling raise. And, and again, they didn't raise the debt ceiling. They ended the debt ceiling. Like there's no dollar amount they've put for the next two years. They just put it off till yeah. 2025. So essentially they, they, they ended it, which a smart Congress would do anyway to avoid these fights. I mean, they were going to have this next March in, in 10 months to beat Biden over the head with and threaten another government shutdown during his mm-hmm. reelection campaign. And somehow little Kevy didn't think that was a good strategy for the GOP. And they just let Biden have it. It's done it's just- until 2025. Just remarkable. I was thinking maybe, John, six month extension for the debt ceiling. Like, right. Oh, yeah, we'll lift it now. And then maybe uh, half a year from now, or I think even less, maybe 90 days would have been on the table at some point. But uh, none of that happened. It's 2025. This is phenomenal news. Obviously, I think this will, by its very nature, this will help to boost the economy even further because this puts more faith in the uh, the credit of the United States, that this isn't going to be one of these uh, uh, things that disrupts and destabilizes the world economy every time right. the Republicans decide to uh, hold this thing hostage. So in that regard, I think this is a, th- that in and of itself is one of the biggest wins in this debt ceiling deal. And you know what, uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, he, he, the way he managed this uh, was just a, such a disaster. But you know what? At the same time, the Clown Car Caucus got to complain about it. So there's yeah. at least that. And that's what they're all about. They're all about complaining about things. So in a sense, they kind of got what they wanted too. <laughs> well, let, <laughs> you let's, know? let's be fair about that too, because there's plenty of people on the on the left who are unhappy about it. I mean, this thing, you know, yeah. on a climate level, this this bill sucks. Uh, you know, Joe Manchin got his dirty fucking pipeline in there. Uh, you know, there there's, I mean, their expanded work requirements could have been a lot worse, no doubt. I mean, there are concessions here, and of course, Democrats have concessions that will hurt poor people and working people. Republicans' concessions will, you know. Make some billionaire have to get a yacht that's two feet shorter. I mean, that's but but where do you come down? Are you on the how do you feel about the Democrats who are angry about either how it was negotiated or the final deal? Or are you more with the majority saying, thank God, at least it's done? Yeah, I'm I think I'm with the latter, John. I'm I'm happy that it's seems to be over. Knock on wood. It has to pass the Senate, of course. But uh, I'm. You know, look, I, I, again, I was someone who wanted the 14th Amendment invo- invoked yeah, for no other reason but to get rid of the debt ceiling entirely. Yeah. Uh, and, I'm ready for the trillion dollar coin minting. I'm, I'm here for that. Yeah. Well, shy of those things, which are extreme measures. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, unlikely measures. I think as far as, you know, compromise goes, this is absolutely the best thing that could have possibly happened out of these negotiations. I think this is the best possible deal that could have been made, given the fact that Republicans control the House. This wouldn't be an issue if we had won five additional seats. If, uh, for example, if New York hadn't screwed up its gerrymander, that whole nightmare prior to 2022, Mm -hmm. uh, this may not have been a thing in the first place, but the fact that we have divided government in a sense requires some form of deal making here. And insofar as there had to be a deal made, this is probably the best case scenario. I mean, I was concerned about the Republicans maybe chipping away at some of the uh, uh, climate crisis spending that uh, came out of the uh, what are they what were they called <laughs> the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, and uh, some all of the protected. other all protected, like yeah, like all protected. The shrewdest thing that Biden did here 
with this deal was protect pretty much everything Biden's done so far. Yeah, yeah, it's it's remarkable. And they only ended up with a slight reduction in spending on the IRS, while the the spending for the IRS is still significant. The greatest advance ever, the greatest bump in spending ever to go after rich tax chiefs, which is why Bernie Carrick's so angry about it. Yeah, exactly. And that's such a great way to uh, frame it, John, because oftentimes when you're talking about funding the IRS, it's kind of a no win situation because, uh, I mean, no one really loves the IRS. We love it when we need it. But and and we obviously need it. I mean, we need it to fund the government. I love this bullshit that the Republicans play with every couple of years about abolishing the IRS without right. any sense of step two in that process. OK, you want to abolish the, the IRS gnomes, underpass gnomes. That's it completely. <laughs> yeah. Let me let me let me shift gears for a second and ask you about okay. this. You know, we were we've been talking a lot about Evan Corcoran, uh, Donald Trump's lawyer who gave Donald Trump a 50 page document saying it's illegal for you to steal these documents. And now um, Jack Smith has those 50 pages of notes and warnings. We've talked a lot about how the timeline shows that Evan Corcoran himself went through Trump's storage room to try to find these files and that Trump himself had like his butler or someone move the files and undermine his own attorney who's now been forced to, you know, cooperate and and testify uh, against his own client. Tonight, it all changes. Tonight, we learn that there is a recording about two minutes long in summer of 2021 where Donald Trump is acknowledging he held on to some classified documents about a possible attack on Iran. And at one point in the recording, he says he'd like to share this information, but he knows there's he might not be able to post-presidency to declassify records, which shows he was lying yeah. all along and knew he was lying when he said, I can declassify anything I want. Um, I mean, this is good news for Ron DeSantis, right? This is this to me shows that Jack Smith has got a lot. He's got a lot of receipts. There's lordy. There are tapes. Yeah. Donald Trump's going to have a very interesting next 12 months of his life. Yes, he is. And this is you know what this is, John, the CNN news about uh, this this tape of Donald Trump talking about these classified documents. This is the Bob Woodward tapes part two. Bob Woodward spoke to Donald Trump about COVID as it was ramping up, whatever that was, February of 2020. And Donald Trump acknowledging on tape, like an idiot, that the COVID threat was much more severe than he was saying publicly. And obviously his public reaction led to hundreds of thousands of American deaths. By the way, we need to mention that more often. Of course. But this is kind of the same thing. And we've seen this phenomenon happen over and over again with Fox News as well, saying one thing publicly and saying something entirely different privately. And this is a recording of him saying privately, acknowledging that he knew that these documents were classified and he knew what he could and couldn't do with them. He knew it post presidency. And that is, I would say, the entire case that Jack Smith has to make here to prove Donald Trump's guilt, to hand down an indictment and to prosecute this guy because it acknowledges that Donald Trump was aware of what the guardrails of the law were when it came to declassified or declassifying documents and classified documents in the first place. So this just this exposes everything. And, you know, look, I always mention this just by way of, you know, the cup half full. Even if Donald Trump gets away with it in the long term, 
for now, we know that it's it, he's going to be struggling to fall asleep tonight. We know that it's going to be stressing him out. We know that it's going to be totally freaking him out. He's going to be panicked. I mean, there's this other thing about uh, one of his lawyers possibly cooperating, a, right. a spy within the ranks. I mean, I yeah. love that sort of thing because it tweaks his paranoia. It tweaks all of those dark impulses that he has and again whenever donald trump is miserable i'm happy bob let me ask you about something else um the republicans have seemed to decide that they're going to just go ahead and declare war on pride month now now, oh, yeah. You know, six years ago, Donald Trump got the nomination and proudly asserted his pro LGBTQ bona fides in a ridiculous speech someone else wrote for him to say. But when I watched it, I thought, well, Donald Trump's saying he's pro gay. It's over. They can't use that anymore. Turns yeah. out they can still worship their God and follow their own commandments. Um, are you at all surprised? It really seems like they're just low on material if they're going to start flipping <laughs> out about Pride Month now. I mean, why yeah. get mad about the MLK holiday? Well, yeah, right. It's been 50 years, I think more than 50 years. What was Stonewall was, uh, I want to say, yeah, so just about 50 years. And so why suddenly now? And I think there's a very obvious answer to this question. We need some sort of culture war cudgel to enrich ourselves with, to get the money flowing into uh, the Red Hat Entertainment Complex. This is a, you know, this is a financial move by the usual suspects, by the various podcasters and fake news websites and so on. This is what they're doing in order to screw more of their followers out of their life savings by mm. handing over all their money for merch and donations and support for their various uh, platforms and subscription paywalls and so on. And it's beneficial for them in that regard. Plus they get to go neener, neener. We're giving you payback on the cancel culture thing. And, uh, and so this is, this has nothing to do with some sort of uh, some sort of moral outrage this is all about the cynical cash grab. Yeah. But it's also all about, you know, the fascism playbook. We've always yeah. got to have a powerless minority, whether they're Jews or Muslims in our society, mm -hmm. whether they're Italian or Irish, whether they're black, whether they're gay people who want to marry undocumented immigrants, transgender children. It's always got to be a group that's marginalized, yeah. that has no power. And the fascist playbook in every society is always terrify the majority of this tiny minority that somehow they're going to come and take away their liberty and only I can protect you. It sort of seems like they become so emboldened, Mr. Seska, on their anti-transgender crack they're smoking that they're just going ahead and saying, let's go after all LGBT stuff. I mean, former gay person Dave Rubin, because I, I say that because they made him turn in his gay card after he became Tucker Carlson's pet homosexual. Dave Rubin put out a video today warning straight people as a gay man about how obnoxious it's going to get coming tomorrow. And it's just like, my God, like literally they don't ever want to win elections again. This shit doesn't help yeah. you with under 50 white voters. Exactly, exactly. And and they're sort of pegging this as the new critical race theory. This is the the new uh, shiny object that they can play with and scare the voters that they need. And this is all about, uh, you know, uh, as I said, this is all about the money. But to a secondary sense, this is also about you know, making sure the base is secure, making sure the base is ready to vote for Donald Trump next time around. And so they're getting ready. They're putting together their list of grievances and outrages. And that's 
ultimately this is not just I, I think even beyond all of this, I think we need to be especially cognizant of the fact that the next month is going to be potentially harrowing. How so? And I'm, How so? I'm not. Well, in terms of the level of violent threats that are out there right now, some of the usual suspects like uh, Charlie Kirk, for example, is spending oh, a lot of time. Wow. The Giants. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, the dumbest man in politics oh, is saying things uh, along the lines of, well, using fighting words, so to speak, no. being very bellicose with his language, even though he doesn't know what bellicose means. That guy is regardless. such a fake he's, Christian knob. That guy is, I, I had to ride on a really Politicon with him once. He's such a fraud. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the, the funny thing is, John, is uh, to an extent, uh, this is a massive overcompensation. On top of everything else, I think a lot of these guys are seriously overcompensating and projecting. And and uh, I think they to an extent, they desperately want to participate. I mean, uh, Michael Knowles, Pastor Michael Knowles, anti-trans, that guy as well, abolish all transgender. Yeah, that guy, that guy played a gay man in a college film. And there's nothing wrong with that. His acting career failed and he cared more about popularity than artistic license or decency. So he <laughs> yeah. came home exactly right. It's just right. It's so it's so predictable that these mediocrities, you know, like, yeah. I guess I guess Joe Biden's senile isn't testing well in right wing focus groups this month. Before I lose yeah. you, Mr. Seska, I have to I have to talk about um, the greatest business mind of our time, Elon Musk. Uh, <laughs> now we are learning that Twitter is at this point 33 percent. It's worth 33% of what Musk paid for it. So well done. <laughs> he's so bad with money. I can see why he's a Republican now. But what's with this guy? Like, I, you know, we talked about this. I never bought that he cared about free speech at all. I never bought that he understood censorship because a private Internet platform can't censor you. It can just keep you from posting right. your shit on their platform. But now the amount of misinformation, the amount of dictators that he is withholding information for, it's astonishing. And he made this yeah. bed. He made this bed and created this playing field that he's now violating. Yeah, 83% of all censorship requests coming from authoritarian, non-liberal governments have been capitulated to by Elon Musk. In fact, uh, to be specific, Elon Musk has complied with all of these takedown requests from authoritarian regimes. This is the free speech absolutist who, once again, privately doing one thing, Publicly doing something completely different, right? Publicly saying, oh, I'm all about free speech. In fact, on Twitter, he will shout down anyone who disagrees with him about that. But the facts show that 83% of those requests have been complied with by Twitter. Took them all down. Censored his own platform at the request of tin pot dictators. The other thing is, I am deeply, deeply concerned, and obviously you can fold in his support for dictators into all of this, but I'm deeply concerned about 2024, John, and the influence that Twitter is going to have as far as platforming disinformation. I've been talking about this for weeks now. Yeah, uh, there was a a post, an obvious fake news post by a particular website that I'm not going to mention, and it it was disinformation about covid And it had to do with uh, a study from Israel by the Israeli Ministry of Health. And Elon Musk agreed, therefore, 
therefore elevating this fake news, agreed with it on Twitter, elevated it because of his participation in the conversation. The thing got 3.7 million views. His agreement with it got 2.5 million views, and it was entirely fake news. The Israeli Ministry of Health got on and said, this is fake news. Stop platforming disinformation, Elon. And he didn't take it down. It's still up. It's still there. It's remarkable. This, I I mean, superimpose this on 2024. Imagine website, if this was about Joe Biden's health. I, I swear to God, you're so that website is like a mob restaurant being burned down for the insurance money. I don't get it anymore. Yeah. Bob Seska, you are the best at what you do. Everyone subscribe to the Bob Seska show. Follow him at Bob Seska. Go. Thank you for classing up our Wednesday, sir. Always. Thanks so, Thank so much, John. Take care. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. This is Progress After Dark. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. Hey, if you've enjoyed our recent interviews with everyone ranging from Ilhan Omar to Eugene Levy, that's my dream road trip, by the way, or Christoph Waltz, uh, all the fun celebrities or politicians we've had recently, you can hear all of those on demand or on the SiriusXM app. Recognize right now, I'm so excited to welcome this next guest. Look, you guys know in the last couple of weeks and months, right wing media has been smearing and trying to get boycotts going against Bud Light against Target, uh, against Disney. All three of those companies have become complete punching bags. Uh, Disney, since they spoke out against the uh, don't say gay bill in Florida last year, Bud Light and Target, of course, for having insufficient hatred for uh, historically oppressed minorities. I mean, we've seen this where these companies are attacked over and over just because they showed a little bit of public support for the LGBTQ community, which is also known as good capitalism. Uh, now Chick-fil-A is under fire for being woke after conservatives heard about a very innocuous statement about diversity the company made last year. Eric McReynolds is Chick-fil-A's vice president and executive director of diversity, equity and inclusion. That is his job title. He had this online statement that went back last fall. Modeling care for others starts in the restaurant and we are committed to ensuring mutual respect understanding and dignity everywhere we do business. These tenets are good business practice and crucial to fulfilling our corporate purpose. Yeah, the right has flipped out about that. Chick-fil-A has gone woke. Turning Point said Chick-fil-A just hired a VP of diversity, equity and inclusion. Is this just checking off a corporate box or they believe this Marxist nonsense? Again, it's got nothing to do with Marxism. You idiots don't know what words mean. You're more. I mean, what are they angry about? The diversity, the equity? Or the inclusion. And by the way, that guy's been Chick-fil-A's VP for a couple of years already. But this is what we've seen now. This is the war on what they're calling woke capitalism. And now it's Fox News. It turns out Fox News actually has a DEI officer. And so that's the source of all evil. When in reality, it's just expressing the basic Judeo-Christian value of kindness. Being more progressive, that is to say, being more decent to other humans is good for a business. It's good for productivity. And it's really good for capitalism. And that's why the big secret of the business world is how corporations have gradually become forces for diversity, equity and inclusion 
and just plain decency. Our next guest is Paul Wolf. He's a human first leadership advocate with over two decades of experience in the HR sector with companies like Match, Condé Nast, more recently Indeed. Mr. Wolf champions the development of workplace cultures built on authentic connection. And in his new book, Human Beings First, he reveals eight practices of empathetic, expressive leadership based on this crazy idea that no matter what your background is, we're all human beings first and foremost. It's the kind of morality that scares the right people. Paul Wolf, what a great pleasure. Welcome to SiriusXM. Oh, John, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you. I, I, I want to talk about the book, but I, I need to I need you to answer some basic questions about DEI for me as an HR professional. I, I, I know you can do that because I'm starting to think that some of our friends on the right think it's wrong for corporations to try to be less racist. Isn't DEI something we need on a basic level to level the playing field in America? Yeah, we do. And and I think, you know, your tee up to it was was wonderful. It, it's it's just common decency at the end of the day. There are so many systems that are whether it's an interviewing process or interviewing questions that a hiring manager asks, compensation systems, performance management systems that have been built in companies for decades, decades and decades that have unconscious bias in them and sometimes truly conscious bias built into them. And so there are systems that are working against underrepresented um, you know, uh, populations and, and, and clusters, and we need to do better. Um, and you know, the, the whole woke, it's so interesting to me. Um, please the, tell the, me, cause I make fun it, of it every so, night. Well, it, you're, you're a professional grown up on this. Right. The common decency should not be politicized. Like that's just it. There's this, there's this quote that gets attributed to Walt Whitman, but it's not, he didn't say it, but it's be curious, not judgmental. And I like it because for me, it frames what I'm trying to do and what I'm talking about in the book and what I talk about when I talk to at conferences and companies. People are different. The one thing, the one universal truth that we can all agree on is we are all human beings first. That's the premise of the book that makes us the same. After that, things get different. Where we were born, where we grew up, where we went to school, what color we are, if we have an accent, if we don't have an accent, how we dress. Um, and we should be thinking about how we treat somebody else with dignity that doesn't look like us or doesn't sound like this. And if we're curious about where they're from or what their beliefs are, just simply ask them. Don't judge. Um, and I'm not suggesting, I get, I get sometimes somebody asks the question about, you know, oh, you're suggesting everybody should be friends. And there's a bunch of articles recently in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times about uh, people being more friendly at work. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that everybody needs to be friends. We'll never all be friends. Correct. Just have some common decency and just ask questions and seek to know somebody a little bit better than you did before. Well, but as you know, Paul, there is social media. And then there's uh, the world. And in social media, <laughs> it's very easy to sit at your keyboard and rail against woke capitalism yep. all day. We say things like Marxism and, and grooming and words you don't know the meaning of. But in what we call the real world, people have to work together. And corporations have gradually in our lifetime come to realize that having a more diverse hiring pool is very, very good for business. And, and I, I've said for so long, you guys are really on the front lines of the cultural evolution. I mean, you know, Me Too got so many headlines for the celebrities, but I always thought yeah. the real Me Too stories that mattered were the ones that didn't make the news. It was the yeah. women who went to HR about what really happened at last year's holiday party. And that's where we see the real change happening. Has that been your experience being having sort of having a front row seat for 
a, a revolution in decency in the American workplace. Yeah, it is. And it's you're right. I, there, there are lots of things that get headlines. And, and I think I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. I think the more people that get drawn or get interested or understand a something that's going on, the better um, and they can support. But at the end of the day, it's the people that come forward that could lose their job and they have a fear of that, that could, you know, their manager could find out that they came to HR about them or said something about them. And there's retaliation, even though you have all these policies and rules in place that 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 support not doing that. But you never know what's going to happen. And so it takes courage. It takes vulnerability. It takes courage to come forward. But I, I think, you know, you think about people in the world that have affected change they've stepped out of their comfort zone they've taken risks whether it be physical or or you know mental or whatever the case they've taken a risk and they don't change the world just by themselves it's it's a bunch of those people doing that over and over and over that starts yes. to change things for the better and you know companies like you know all that you mentioned you know um bud light target I, I, the chick-fil-a one i did not know about until i i listened to you say it which cracks me up oh, um yeah. can you believe it you know, when chick-fil-a loses the homophobes where are we at paul exactly like that's you know um i'm gay so like that's uh my, my husband <laughs> and i have this debate i love chick-fil-a waffle fries but we do not give them our money um it is you know companies they're not is this isn't woke this isn't you know pandering to any group it is just doing the right thing we have people from different generations different races different backgrounds different countries different cultures coming together and working for these global companies tech non-tech it doesn't make a difference and you want them one to be comfortable you want them to be able to be themselves and you want them to feel like they belong and that i think belonging is like the ultimate goal of diversity inclusion and belonging is somebody feeling comfortable being who they are at work nice. um and, and you know some people are like well i don't want all of some people and and look, humans are messy. They are. And I'm not suggesting that, you know, as somebody's manager or somebody's coworker, that you need to be their therapist and you need to hear all the sordid details of their divorce or whatever they're going through. But listening to them, like listening is a is an amazing skill that we don't do overly well anymore mm -hmm. because of I, I think because of technology. We can be distracted, like put the phone down and just listen. Sometimes people just want to be heard and want their feelings to be acknowledged. They don't need you to agree with them. They just want to get it off their chest and see another human being who can understand what they're saying and empathize or sympathize or just acknowledge what they're going through. And that to me is not woke. That's just common decency. I agree. And in, in Human Beings First, you you talk about these eight practices of of empathetic, expressive leadership. And, and in going through it, I, I kept applying it to politics. Part of that is because I work in this crazy place, but I kept yeah. thinking about, you know, when you talk about how leaders who create environments where individuals feel valued and appreciated, as you put, they, they feel safe bringing their full selves to work. That clears the way for the employee's personal and professional success and development. You're just by, by creating a workplace of intelligence, decency, and support, you clear a lot of bullshit out of the way. And somehow people who don't like the idea of that kind of equity are calling this woke as a slur. 
it it's just it 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 still befuddles me. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, um, especially in the world, world of politics. There's a whole separate conversation we could have, mm-hmm. um, especially as we get ready gear up for another interesting presidential election here in the U.S. Uh, it is just you know it's it to me it's just easier, and I think this is just the way I've led for the period of time that I've been in HR. And then it's like, oh, let me write a book about it. And it was interesting as we started to put the book together, I I had a a co-writer that I worked with who was amazing. And one of my first meetings with her, she's like, let's talk about your patented process for being a human first leader. I'm like, there's no patented process. This is, these are behaviors that, and, and emotions that we all as humans already have there's nothing new to learn here this is just goes back to you know the 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 golden rule or the rules our parents taught us we were growing up treat others as you'd like to be treated um you know just be a good human and again i'm not saying we all have to be friends and sing kumbaya at the end of the day but just be decent to each other just it it goes and and trying to inspire workers with fear trying to inspire workers with fear feels like a very uh, 20th century or not entirely first world way of doing business. No, it is. And I also think, you know, you get into CEOs and executive teams making these decisions to force people back into the office a certain number of days a week. And I think part of it is, is they want to control or they want to see butts and seats because they don't trust them. And I think right. trust comes with this too. Again, trust is built over time, but it's not, and it, Trust doesn't happen just because two people agree on everything. It's because we get we get to know each other a little bit deeper. We make a deeper connection. We have, you know, a, a level of understanding of each other. And so I think, you know, why are we gonna like? Well, why are we gonna use the stick methodology? Use the carrot. Create an amazing environment. And you know, at the end of the day, having been, you know, a CHRO for twenty something plus years, people that feel more comfortable, that are more connected to their leader, to their teammates. Uh, to other people they work with are more productive, they're going to be more loyal, and they're going to run through walls for you. And, you know, it's an interesting labor market today, too, and where we've got, you know, jobs being created, we see all these layoffs, you know, week after week, month after month, but the unemployment rate is at a 50 year low. Um, And so being able to create an environment where people want to be and want to stay is better for for the financial bottom line of a company as well. My guest is Paul Wolf. He's the author of the excellent new book, Human Beings First, Practices for Empathetic Expressive Leadership. And, you know, you're a TV expert on on workplace issues. And I was reading uh, this article in CNBC that was interviewing you um, that said that most workers want their employer to share their values and that 56 percent won't even consider working at a business that doesn't share their values. And it got me wondering, Paul, how much has uh, millennials and Gen Z begun to change the way workforces operate? How much has the, shall we say, expanding standards for decency of younger people changed the way corporations do business? You know, it's interesting because I got asked a very similar question at a conference I spoke at last week, and I'm going to give the same answer because I I believe in it. I, I don't I think there is, you know, we've got five generations in the workforce now, which is from an HR, just a leadership perspective, interesting, because you've got to yes. figure out how to you know, manage all of those and connect with all of those. A lot of what millennials and Gen Z and kind of the, the, the newer generations 
are asking for and demanding in some cases, I think we all really want. We, I'm not in any of those generational groups. I'll turn 56 in, you know, 50 or in, uh, in, in a month and a half. Um, I want all the same things. I just was taught growing up, you don't vocalize it. You just kind of put your head down and get the job done. If nice things happen, that's good. I think there is something good about the vocalization of these desires because it is really getting companies and leaders to change and it's really changing for the better. It goes back to we're just we should just be decent to each other. Like that's that it. is that's not hard. It's good business. I mean, you you point that yes. out time and time again that it's just basically good business. You know, you you mentioned the COVID-19 pandemic. How how has the way we worked changed? Paul. I mean, obviously, there's probably no going back. A lot of corporations are realizing, hey, why are we spending all this money for square footage of office space? A lot of people have realized, hey, I do even more productivity when I don't have two hours of commuting a day. But I know it goes deeper than that. I mean, how are companies learning to adapt and find new ways of working in this changing landscape? Yeah, it's a it's a good one. It's an interesting one. I don't know that a lot of them are are being willing to adapt. And let me explain that. So, you know, for decades, we had a paradigm of work, which was you get up, you commute into an office, you work in the office eight or 10 or whatever it is hours and you do the same, you know, you, you commute home and you do the same thing five days a week. Um, and that's what we knew. And then you, you would you would hear a lot of companies talk about how their office is, you know, is their culture. And I, I call bullshit on that because the four walls don't create a culture. The pandemic came along and it was, you know, it was a shit show. Like, let's be realistic about it, especially early on. Um, I think there are some good things that came out of it from a, a, an HR company kind of leadership perspective. And one of them is realizing that people can do their job. In, in, in a lot of careers and professions and companies can do their job anywhere and be right. effective at it and be good at it. There are still those jobs like a barista at Starbucks or a retail worker or, or you know somebody that's client facing that needs to meet folks in, in a certain space that need to be in a specific space for some period of time to do their work and do it well. But if you think a vast majority HR jobs can be done from anywhere, finance jobs, there's yeah. engineering jobs, not just in the tech sector, in, in the tech sector, marketing and, and all of those. And the other thing that the pandemic, I think, forced us to think about is it's all just life now. There's no work-life balance. It's just work is integrated into life. Work is a subcategory along with, you know, our families, our friends, our pets, our hobbies, and other things that we do, caring for, you know, a a parent or, or a child or whatever the case may be. And you're right. Like there's been a lot of studies done on the amount of time that the commute time that's been given back to people. And in some cases you'd see they're working longer. Um, they're getting time back. They're spending more time with their families. I, I have a friend that, that works for a company that remain nameless um, who was home for the pandemic. Like the rest of us uh, got to coach his son's little league team. Okay. Was amazing. Um, and the company he works for said, well, you need to be back in the office three days a week um, because that's what we are mandating. And so coaching Little League is off the table now and the commute is back on the table. Why? Um, that's the question. And, and I think if you really look at this from a diversity, inclusion and belonging perspective, when you start to look at the big companies that are making these decisions, as I call it this forced return to office, 
Um, and you went, you you go down the list of the demographics of those CEOs who are owning this decision, whether exactly. it was solely theirs or a group that the executive mm-hmm. team, but at the end of the day, the CEO is the CEO. My guess is you're going to see folks in different socioeconomic settings than an individual contributor, typically white, typically men, typically in their fifties and typically heterosexual. Um, why are those people the ones just making the decision? There's a exactly. you know a, a good example is Lyft, um, and and you know they're trailing to Uber. They have a new CEO recently. They took over from two co-founders, and they're trying to turn the company around. Look, that's a tough job. It is tough, um, and he uh, is demanding the the workers be back in the office a certain number of days a week. And it's like why? And so I I, may, I posted on LinkedIn about it and called him out and called Lyft out. And I it's not about bullying or anything like that but it's like let's have a real conversation about this because when you when you see when you read these return to work forced return to work articles there's nothing in there about how they're going to measure whether being in the office is better than not the reasons they give collaboration mentoring learning culture all very soft and squishy things that are very, very challenging to measure. And so I'm fine if there's a forced return to office and the company owns, we are going to measure it by X, Y, and Z. And in a right. year, we're going to come back and tell you what those measure, what those metrics show. And if it's working, we're going to tell you it's working and we're going to keep doing it. And if it's not, we're going to pivot and we're going to move away from it because it, it's not the right thing to do. It but I think so the... Sense. I think the, the companies and the leaders that are going to win are the ones that allow flexibility. Um, as again, I think the nine to five workday, that paradigm got blown away a, a long time ago because of technology, but even mm. more so because of the pandemic. And thinking yeah. about where somebody is in their life, if they've got you know, a, a young child and they need to be, they need to spend some, you know, more time with them in the morning and be offline and then jump online. And then they're going to be offline in the early afternoon to feed the, the the baby or the toddler and put them down and they're back online later versus, you know, my husband and I have three dogs. They like to go out three times a day since I've been working from home for the last four years. We do that. I still get my job done. Um, if we're traveling, you know, we, we figure out and uh, make sure our dog nanny does it. But everybody's at it. You know, everyone's life is different and yeah. they have different needs. And that, that affording somebody that flexibility, I think, is a wonderful thing and a wonderful way to let somebody lead a better life while working. Uh, as the fan of the concept of the four day work week, I salute you for that. Yeah. Uh, Paul, I want to ask you early in the book, Human Beings First, you you include an interesting bit of science that I've been obsessed with um, since I got the book where you say we've discovered that our bodies house four important chemicals that add to our success in business and in life. And you run through what endorphins do, dopamine, oxytocin. And serotonin, you know, and you say the choices are is I want to experience my endorphins, dopamine, oxytocin, serotonin, and cortisol in the most positive way possible. Doing this will allow me to become a better leader for my team and a better human being. I'm curious, what was it that made you decide to go to the actual science? Because that's exactly what we're talking about. It's all about a squirt of something positive in our brain that is a brief pleasure, but feels like happiness. And when handled the right way, I would imagine can just make work more pleasant and productive for everyone. If we understand the science of just making the brain happy. Well, and I think that's exactly why it's like you, you, you know, if, as an HR leader, you, a lot of times there's a perspective from people that aren't in the HR space that what we do is just warm and fuzzy. 
and it's very subjective all the time. And, you know, I've worked for a lot of companies and data is king. And so let's talk about data behind our kind of more subjective thing, whether it be employee engagement, workplace happiness, performance management, you know, kind of the list goes on and on and on. And I thought it was important to bring in data and other experts uh, talking about kind of what they've seen and how they've measured, whether it be workplace happiness or other things into it. It's a simple thing. And you're right. I want, you know, like I say in the book, I want all four of those to be working in the best way possible. So I have the best experience possible while I'm doing my job because I'm living my, ultimately I'm living my life and my job is just a part of that life. And how do I take that and and make that kind of euphoric feeling last as long as it possibly can? And what an, what an amazing concept to be, want to do that, to make work an enjoyable experience versus the Sunday scaries that a lot of us talk about. And you see articles written about all the time. Absolutely. I, I have another dumb question, Paul, and thank you. I'm learning so much about how your job functions. But um, you write in the book about confirmation bias, and you say studies have shown that once someone has formed an initial judgment or opinion about something, there is a strong tendency to reaffirm that assessment. It's done by intentionally seeking out evidence that will confirm or reinforce that point of view, and people will deny or intentionally avoid considering any evidence to the contrary. You know, going to the news, say, about politics, not for information, but for affirmation, was another area where it struck me that the parallels between the corporate world and the political world are so thick. But how do you, as an HR person, how does a corporation handle things like confirmation bias from within? I think you've got to think about one, you need to educate your employees and your leaders about what confirmation bias is, what unconscious bias is, because we all have unconscious bias. It's just inherent in us. And as human beings, we're kind of hardwired to judge and that how we, you know, the the family setting we grew up in, what, you know, socioeconomic uh, level we grew up in, what neighborhood we grow up in, and, and, and lots of things throughout our life form these unconscious bias of ours. It's just like, oh, I met this person, they looked like me. You, know, you see a lot of, um, I, I'll use engineering as an example, uh, a lot of um, you know white and Asian men in engineering. And so right. you see them, they grow up, they, they kind of move up the ranks, they become leaders, and they hire more people like them because you're more comfortable with somebody exactly. like you. It looks like you. Yeah. that's unconscious bias. <laughs> that's um, the 20th century. Yeah, it, it is. It is. And so you've got to help folks understand it. And there's nothing wrong with it. Like, it, that's the other thing. I think when you start to talk about diversity, inclusion, belonging, diversity, equity, inclusion, whatever initials you want to put around um, kind of that work, people start to get defensive, especially white, straight men get defensive. That should not be what our goal is. Our goal is just to educate so people have an awareness about your unconscious bias. You know, I find myself like I'll see something um, and I start to judge and you you catch yourself. It's like, oh, I should not just assume because I don't know all the facts about what's going on. I was in the city yesterday having lunch with a friend and I saw this argument on the street corner, which is a typical, pretty, pretty typical thing in the, in the city. And, um, you know, my mind, you know, we, we all do this like, Oh, like this is what happened. This is what I heard. You make these assumptions. Well, that's wrong. I shouldn't make those assumptions. If I was really interested in, you know, who was right in the argument or wrong in the argument, I should go ask a bunch of questions. I was not going to do that, um, to a bunch of, a bunch of strangers, (laughs) but I think you've got to help educate people and and let them understand what these, what these things are that creep in toward decision-making that, that create bias. And then you've got to look at your systems. 
you know, is your compensation system rife with unconscious bias? Let's think about it. If it was developed by a bunch of white men, it more than likely is because their thinking yeah. goes into that. They already have How a conscious bias. That's why you you hear so many product organizations talking about diversity of the, the product teams that they are, that are building things. Um, you know, they're, I think that when the iPhone originally came out, it wasn't really great for left-handed folks. I'm left-handed. I figured it out because they had they didn't have a left-handed person or enough exactly. left-handed people in the process giving feedback about how it could work better. And we see that all the time. All the time. And so, so I think you've got to start to look at those systems that we've created over time and do they have, you know, put them through the bias test, start to fundamentally change them and get more perspectives in there to build systems that are better. Now, I will say none of this is work that's ever done. It's an ongoing kind of push and pull that needs to continuously happen to keep up with how opinions are evolving, how the biases are evolving, and how everything just work in general is evolving. But it's the right work to do because at the end of the day, what we should want is the most level playing field for everybody in a in a in a, in a company. Exactly. Well, then let me ask you, Paul, what advice would you give our listeners when they're dealing with a, a conservative loved one or coworker? Who goes off on DEI, this new buzzword, the new woke, the new grooming, the new boogeyman um, from a from an HR point of view? You know, to me, it's like they're they're not just attacking minorities. They're attacking capitalism itself. Yeah. That's how badly the suckering is. What would you advise people to say who aren't necessarily HR professionals about why business needs DEI? Yeah, sadly, I have first an experience with this one. Um, <laughs> so I, I think. You know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. You know, I'm a, I'm a believer in that. Uh, they, not everyone has to have the same opinion that I do. Uh, when somebody has a different opinion, um, I will ask questions. My One of my first things I'll ask is, what data are you using or what source are you using? Uh, to talk to, you know, if, if you're talking about, hey, I read this and this says this and I believe this and this is right and this is the way we should all think. All right, yeah. show me the source. If it's, you know, and, and we all know kind of reputable and, and and not so reputable sources, and there's lots of both of them these days. And so, like, let's start there. If it's not reputable, I'll probably point that out and see how the conversation goes. At some point, you may just have to, like, tap out and be like, okay, I got it. Sure. Um, but I think if it, if it is reputable, like, let's have a conversation about it. Why do you believe that? And this goes back to be curious, not judgmental. Exactly. Why do you believe that? Help me under, help me see your perspective on that. Hopefully, as you do that, and I, you know, if they've got the difference, or, you know, you're, you're asking them and you're kind of hopefully laying the the groundwork of some psychological safety so that once you get done asking your questions and them giving you answers, they can do the same of you. You don't both have to walk away agreeing, but I think you have a better understanding of the other's opinion and you should have more respect for the other person um, and in treating them with dignity and going through that process. Now that, you know, may be the most Pollyanna thing I've said in a long time um, <laughs> because it may just like, there may be no getting through during the sure. 2020 election, a similar conversation came up um, with some of my family and there was just no getting through because yeah. they were believing unreputable news sources. And I that fed a, their bias. Re, right. As a reasonably rational person, most of the time, like I, there was no arguing that. So right. you just kind of have to like, OK, got it. Understand. Let's just agree to disagree. 
and walk away from it because yeah. there's, you know, it, it, is there is is something going to be made better by continuing to kind of go at it? Probably not. It's it's only going to go downhill from there. Mm. Wow. I wish I wish we worked together because I would come. I would feel very safe coming to you about my abusive producer, Chris. Uh, in time. <laughs> um, before I let you go, Mr. Wolf, and I thank you for staying up late. Let, let me ask, what is the 52 Humans video podcast all about? So 52 Humans is a short form vlogcast that I do uh, once a week, 52. Um, and it really is talking to folks and not just HR folks. Um, about their, their to explain, telling their story of how they exhibited human first leadership or they've seen it exhibited. And the, the point of it is, is really just to give listeners and viewers an example. I'm a big example learner. Like if I see, if I, if somebody explains something to me and I, or I see it and I, I can, there's something tangible about it. I'm like, okay, I can figure out how I can apply that. And I don't right. need people to copy these examples that people are, that guests are giving. But my hope is that people can start to think about their relationships differently, whether it be a work relationship or a personal relationship and how they can lead or be more human and show more empathy in their kind of conversations and their interactions with whoever it is that they're interacting with or they're, they're building a relationship with. So it's a weekly, um, you can catch them on my site. They're on, you know, Spotify, Apple, any place you can get a podcast. Paul Wolf is the author of Human Beings First, Practices for Empathetic Expressive Leadership. It is such a pleasure having you here. I learned so much. Thank you for helping me understand these issues better and for illustrating how it is people in the corporate world who, in many cases, young people who are leading us to greater decency. And, and thanks for all you do. Come back anytime, please. Absolutely. I so appreciate the opportunity to, to chat with you about my book. Thank you. I love the book. We got to take a quick break. We'll be right back with your calls. We are at 866-997-4748. This is Progress. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John saying. We are only a few minutes away from June, if you're listening live, and I'm so pleased to welcome Max Burns back to the show. Anytime we can get Max Burns here, we hit the lotto. Uh, he's a Public Relations Society of America award-winning Democratic strategist and a terrific political columnist. He has guided some of the most successful American companies and campaigns, and you may have read him or seen him, you name it, NBC, Daily Beast, News Nation. We're thrilled to welcome Mr. Max Burns back to SiriusXM. Hello, sir. Hey, how are you? Thanks so much for having me. I'm doing okay, and apparently I'm having a much better evening than Kevin McCarthy. Uh, more Democrats voted for this debt limit increase than Republicans. He couldn't even deliver the 150 he had promised to Hakeem Jeffries. I mean, should we breathe a sigh of relief about this, or should we be terrified that they're going to have a rumble and come back with Speaker Steve Scalise by next week? I think as a country, we should take a breath of relief because getting this bill through was job number one and, and Kevin McCarthy delivered it, but at a huge cost for him. As you mentioned, 71 Republicans voted against this. That's over a third of his caucus. And because of the way that he agreed to share power with the Freedom Caucus, uh, literally a single member of Congress on the right can institute a motion to vacate the chair. And he now has 71 pretty angry people who he's basically told, if you don't like me, go pound sand. And it's it's not clear he has the political capital to to swing around the stick like that. 
I mean, yeah, that's what I'm confused about. How much of this is resentment that they really, truly hate this guy? And how much is it that they knew they had to do it? I mean, Max, if there's one takeaway we can have, it's that the Republicans were afraid of defaulting on the debt, right? Not afraid of shutting down the government. They'll do that before breakfast. But clearly, they don't want to shut down the entire economy. They don't want to default on the debt. So they, they to some degree, went along for this. I mean, how much of these uh, tantrums by the right are actually things Kevin McCarthy knew about well in advance. You know, we know ne- we always knew that Nancy Pelosi would discuss with AOC, okay, this you'll be mad at me about this, you'll support me on this. I mean, is it possible that this is all a lot of crocodile tears and that this is just the deal they all made and they've got to go on Fox News and back to their constituents and grumble, grumble, grumble and keep on playing their pantomime? I think the challenge here with the GOP is unlike the Democrats that have sort of a left flank to it, there is not so much a distinct breakaway sentiment in in the Democratic Party. The Freedom Caucus largely views itself as an independent conservative negotiating bloc, and they've made clear they're fine humiliating Republicans when they think it serves their narrow ideological interest. So it makes it really hard to govern. I mean, as you mentioned, Kevin McCarthy said that he was going to bring 150 Republicans along. He fell short. Uh, He said worst case scenario, he expected maybe 45 Republicans to go against him, sort of the core of the Freedom Caucus. He got almost double that. I mean, by any measure, this is an assessment that Kevin McCarthy is a very weak speaker. And this is likely the last big push he's going to have the capital to do. What do you mean by that? Like, I mean, there there, there are going to be more um, government shutdowns that could happen. I mean, they, they did avert having to go through this again in 10 months. But do you do you think that Kevin McCarthy is going to be challenged by that single vote in this caucus? I don't think right now we're hearing that. I think we're, there's certainly conversations going on on the Hill right now on the right to see who's amenable to what. And short of actually making that motion to vacate, doing something to continue dragging Kevin McCarthy. I think that the Freedom Caucus made clear they would give McCarthy his debt ceiling bill, but he's going to have to crawl through the mud for it. I mean, you even had Nancy yeah, Mace right. saying that he he couldn't beat Joe Biden, who couldn't put on his pants. You had Dan Bishop, I think, comparing him to Nancy Pelosi, which is practically a swear word on the right. I mean, it's going to be a rough month for Kevin McCarthy. Oh, yeah. And by the way, let's not forget, I mean, you point out on your Twitter, McCarthy failed on two fronts tonight. You say he underperformed worst expectations for this vote by almost 45 percent, losing a third of his caucus in the process. And he failed his own pledge to pass the bill with 150 GOP votes. But, Max, what about all the failures that McCarthy has that he's only beginning to realize? Because what shocks me the most about the deal Old man Biden was able to negotiate here. This dementia patient who keeps out playing them was the the two year extension that it's not raising the debt limit. It's ending the debt limit for two years. They had Biden. They were going to do this again in March of next year and completely crucify him in time for the primary season in his campaign. I don't know what he did, but the greatest piece of leverage Kevin McCarthy had for next year is now gone. That really is, I think, along with sort of this fake about the IRS where where they said, "Okay, we initially remember Kevin McCarthy wanted all of the 80 billion dollars Biden had allocated to the IRS cut. And then he said, well, we'll take 10 million. And they got about or we'll take 10 10 billion. billion. 
got about one billion. So between that and pushing this debt fight beyond the the next set of elections is a huge win for Joe Biden, not just politically, but for good government. That thing we've completely seemed to forget about a lot of the time, that this is actually going to help the economy, help us reassure creditors about our credit score. This will have a long term benefit beyond just next year. I I completely agree. Is Kevin McCarthy's job in this done now? Can he just go to sleep on this issue and, you know, come out and scream about woke shit tomorrow? I mean, it goes to the Senate and then it goes to Biden's desk. Is is McCarthy at least able to say this is behind him and now he can go try to mend fences with his base? Yeah. And it was interesting to me in his speech right afterwards, which was supposed to be a victory speech, but he was scowling through the whole thing, still settling scores with Joe Biden that he said in his in his opening, I wanted to make history, that, that he wanted his speakership to make history, which is uh, his way of spinning the fact <laughs> that they've agreed to a two year debt freeze, uh, which is something that he's trying to see if his party will swallow it. They oh. do not seem to be buying it if Twitter's any indication. Oh, I mean, he, they just they, they they just took away the greatest weapon they had against Biden for next year. You know, I mean, Thomas Massey voted yes for this. A lot of right wingers did vote yes on this. But what about the Democrats who voted no? I mean, here in New York, you pointed out both AOC and Congressman Jerry Nadler voted against it. A lot of progressives are mad about it. They're really mad about the dirty fossil fuel pipeline that Manchin was able to strong arm into this thing. What do you make of the Democrats who have dissented? Is it is it genuine or is it, you know, a lot of theater because Joe Biden doesn't want to have a, a victory celebration before this thing is done? Well, I think part of it is that the the concerns are earnest. I mean, let's be real. This is a compromise where Democrats gave up some stuff. I mean, there are going to be stiffer work requirements for social programs. This does cut some programs uh, and free spending for others, which is a net loss given inflation. But I think they also realize that that they've made their political statement and that they're going to hold their their political capital a little bit longer. At this point, uh, it would be seen as as a huge Uh, not just betrayal for Joe Biden, but a huge betrayal to the country to cause any kind of disruption to this. And, And they'll be sure to make their complaints known the next time we have budgets come up. So it really is going to still be Kevin beat up Kevin McCarthy week, right? Or beat up Kevin McCarthy month like that's not going away. Yeah, just like every week under Trump was infrastructure week, every week of Kevin McCarthy's speakership is beat up on Kevin McCarthy week. And the reality is, I mean, Chip Roy made clear uh, in the committee He said, good luck from Kevin McCarthy getting anything from him. Good luck on any of those sweetheart pieces of legislation he wanted to pass this year. He basically spent his capital and now the Freedom Caucus has let him know that they're going to be in the driver's seat for the rest of the term. It's going to be a really interesting summer, isn't it? Um, Also, let's talk about uh, the former host of Celebrity Apprentice, shall we? Uh, CNN's reporting. Federal prosecutors somehow have an audio recording of a meeting at the Bedminster Club two years ago where Donald Trump pretty much admits that he held on to a classified Pentagon document about a potential attack on Iran. Uh, I'm dying to have you unpack this, but Lordy, there are tapes. It really seems like Jack Smith knows what he's doing and he's playing a long game. Yeah, I think in contrast to the Mueller investigation, Jack Smith is really turning over everything. And this tape, it is hard to overstate the importance of this tape, because not only does it show every single defense line Donald Trump is using being dismantled by Trump himself, 
it shows that he recognized that these documents were classified, that he complained he couldn't show them to people. And he seemed to imply that he had some plan for these documents if he could find a way to share them. And we're not talking about, you know, some White House talking points. This is the battle plan against Iran. I mean, this is one of the yes. most sensitive documents in the United States. He knew he shouldn't have had it. And he's he's essentially just left the entire party holding the bag on defenses that are completely blown away now. And and can we do some irresponsible speculating? Because how interesting is it that this document that Trump is on tape saying that he he I mean, he knows he's not allowed to. Like, this is the man who has repeatedly said he can automatically declassify anything with his mind. He can do it. But these tapes make it very, very clear that Trump knows he's not allowed to share this information, knows he's not allowed to declassify records. Essentially, he's so freaking dumb. He's on tape saying everything you've heard me say for the last two years is a lie. It, it, I mean, and, and what's interesting is it's at Bedminster, which is where the Saudis, who hate the Iranians came for their live golf tournament and paid Trump tons of money. Is it is it noteworthy that this is in Bedminster? Because, the, I mean, he was there to help with the ghostwriters of Mark Meadows' book. But uh, Bedminster was never searched. Is that anything we should be leaning on? It's certainly something I think that's caught Jack Smith's ear, uh, most notably per CNN, that after he's talking about this Iran document and complaining that he can't show it to people, you hear him waving around several documents in the audio. And there's great speculation as to whether he's actually holding these documents while he's talking to these people. While he's talking. And I mean, if nothing else, that's that's a huge national security breach in itself. But it now seems that these weren't just sitting in some closet, that he actually had some, however, half-formed scheme for leveraging these in some way. And that is absolutely a crime from the start. What do you make of Evan Corcoran testifying to the grand jury? We've learned the timeline that's been assembled that shows that, you know, he went to find these documents in Trump's basement and Trump had them moved before his own lawyer came there. We know that he gave Trump a 50 page document about why it's illegal to keep these classified records. So Trump definitely knew. And now that 50 page document is in the hands of Jack Smith. Yeah, as Evan Corcoran knows, you can only do so much to insulate your client from themselves. And at some point you have to insulate yourself. And he sent a document. He said, please confirm to me that that you understand this, that you do not have any documents, that you cannot have them when you've been subpoenaed. Trump said, sure. And now I think it's not a coincidence. We're seeing members of Trump's legal team start to step away and find urgent family business they need to tend to. A lot of uh, a lot of tree houses getting built this summer all of a sudden. I mean, that's really it, right? Like, I, I don't know how Don, I mean, I know how Donald Trump is keeping lawyers billable hours. That's how he's keeping lawyers. And I think a lot of his lawyers are ill serving him. But uh, it's going to be very interesting. Evan Corcoran could be the most famous. As far as I know, he's the first one, not counting, you know, Michael Cohen, who's had to testify against Trump. It is it is remarkable how. Uh, the attorney client privilege around Trump just shatters because almost every communication he's been found to have with his attorneys contained some element of obstruction or a crime. I mean, this is a person who has for years used lawyers very effectively here in New York to 
to effectively commit his crimes with a shield of attorney client privilege. And now that that's been pierced, we see everything has begun to come out. And I think we'll see even more as these documents start to make their way to the press. I mean, you put it the fundamental question in all of these cases is always what did the president know and when did he know it? If these recordings, which CNN has not heard yet, they just have a couple of different witnesses who've described the recordings in detail and their stories match up. But what did the president know, Max? Well, it certainly appears at the moment he knew he shouldn't have those documents that he he was not entitled to them, that he didn't have the power to declassify them. And less notably for this case, but more notably for Georgia, he acknowledged that he couldn't declassify them because he wasn't president anymore. So that <laughs> should also demolish his defense in that case as well. That's right. Be I, thought he really, I thought he was president in exile. Yeah, I, Max, I'm like, hey, Jimmy Carter's still alive. Maybe Let's get him to mentally reclassify the documents with his mind, since this is so easy to do. Um, I, I have to talk to you about uh, Rhonda. Uh, Ron DeSantis, uh, governor of uh, Florida. I want to play a quick little clip here, Sean. This is clip A1. Um, this is Ron DeSantis, who seems to be very, very confident that Donald Trump's legal woes are going to get a lot worse. Uh, you know, since Donald Trump was talking about uh, uh, grooming yesterday, now Ron DeSantis has to cover a Donald Trump song. Here he is promising how he will fix the border issue when he's president. A1. As a Republican, uh, I'm frustrated on things like the border because I've been listening to these politicians talk about securing the border for years and years and years. But I can tell you if I'm president, this will finally be the time where we bring this issue to a conclusion. We will reestablish the sovereignty of this nation. We will declare a national emergency about the border. We'll shut the border down. We'll actually construct a border wall. We'll end mass migration and we will hold the Mexican drug cartels accountable for murdering American citizens. It's like they can't stop campaigning for the very same block of racists that are going to vote for whoever the GOP nomination is. But Max, I mean, DeSantis doesn't mean it. He can't do it. And he knows the country would collapse if we didn't have exploitable, undocumented labor. I'll tell you, DeSantis certainly got here quick. I mean, he's right out of the gate and we're into sovereignty, blood and soil national emergency against immigrants, close the border. I mean, we, we've got real summer of 1932 vibes going through here. And on the other side, you have Donald Trump saying that he'll just end birthright citizenship entirely. Mm -hmm. None of these things they're empowered to do. But when have you ever known the MAGA right to let the law stop them? They see the law as something to be fundamentally reshapen by Republican judges. And the way you do that is by breaking the law with these decisions, baiting them into court and letting your Trump judges uh, stand behind them. And that's exactly what the strategy is here. So Trump is cracking, right, Max? Trump is Trump is losing it. I mean, even though he's so far ahead of DeSantis, he 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 knows how many cases he's got. He knows how much trouble he is and where he's not really in trouble. Now he's just attacking a lot of former loyalists whose support he will need over the next year of his life. It's it's sort of almost like he has no impulse control, Max. I know that's hard to imagine. He just went after Kaylee McEnany. On his filth social site, Kaylee Milktoast McEnany, he misspelled Milktoast, just gave out the wrong no poll numbers on Fox News. I am 34 points up on the sanctimonious, not 25 up. The rhinos and globalists 
can have her. Fox News should use only real stars. This was a Fox News star that he hired to run his White House press corps. I mean, she was so obedient. She was up there the day after January 6th defending him when the rest of his administration wouldn't say anything. He can't stop. He I mean, he just can't stop it. I'll tell you, I've been I've been saying Kaylee McEnany is the deep state since day one. I mean, she she <laughs> screams CIA covert agent. But it, it is a great example of, you know, Kaylee McEnany gave every last measure of devotion to Donald Trump when no one else would stand up in the White House and defend his position on January 6th. She did. And this is a reminder of just what you get from Donald Trump. It only takes one perceived slight and you are in the doghouse. And there goes that promise of your pardon. That's it. I mean, Jenna Ellis, she she expressed both support for DeSantis and Trump. This woman went into court and lied under oath for him dozens of times. And now Maga's just done with her. I mean, done with her. Aside from the fact that it makes Trump look like a thin skinned loser. Um, this is just good. This is going to get this old man Biden elected president again, isn't it? I mean, how can this not be great for the Democrats when you just see DeSantis ramping up his own attacks on Trump after avoiding it for months and Trump just unloading everything? My God, he's he he hates DeSantis like he's a former wife. No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, every primary season we see party fights, but this is sort of on a different level. This is the MAGA movement really does see itself as separate from and above to some extent the GOP. And they they see their mission as reinstalling Donald Trump by beating Joe Biden. But first, they need to conquer what's left of the Republican Party. So they're not in the mood to compromise. They're not going to be perceptive to to a Chris Christie or a Nikki Haley. They want a war to cleanse these people out of the party. And the best opportunity Biden has here is to keep that primary going as long as possible and to keep those fires burning because they're going to spend millions, if not billions, just fighting each other. Yeah. So, I mean, Ron DeSantis said last week in a donor call, there's only three people who could three people who are really running for president. And he said only two of them have a chance of being elected. Joe Biden and he himself, Governor DeSantis. Is he right? I I think he is. I'm I'm torn. You know, Ron was Ron speaks with the same confidence he did in January, but his poll numbers have been cut in half since then. So it's and he's not shown any sign of growth. So it is kind of uh, a bit presumptuous to assume that he's going to go head to head with Joe Biden. There is a, a rather large elephant in front of him who he's going to need to deal with first. And as much as he may say, I'm taking my fight to Joe Biden, I'm not fighting Donald Trump. That's honestly what people who are in second place say in any kind of race. So it shows that he's not quite sure how to attack Trump yet, but he's definitely going to try and just go around him, which has never worked ever. Nope. So, I mean, I guess DeSantis is just playing Survivor and he's just going to try to outlast. Right. It seems like I just think as, as awful as DeSantis is. And I honestly, Max, I can't believe how scared I was of this man for so long. But it seems like he seems to know that Donald Trump's not going to get that nomination somehow or that he knows what you and I know, that Donald Trump probably can never win the uh, Electoral College again. So he's just waiting for Trump to flame out. That seems like what the whole game plan is. That and he's also waiting for the money because Ron DeSantis comes into this with the most pack money behind him. But he's he's low on mega donors. Almost no billionaires want to back him. They're just not sold. So what he's hoping is he'll have the money to get through the first debate. And after that debate, these donors will see most of these people are just three kids in a trench coat and <laughs> toss their money behind 
behind Ron DeSantis because he's literally the only one left on stage. Trump won't be participating. But if that doesn't happen, uh, getting to Super Tuesday gets really hard for him. Yeah. Wow. And let's not forget, Donald Trump will be sitting in a Manhattan courtroom for the beginning of his trial under Alvin Bragg 20 days after Super Tuesday. Um, we have three new people joining the presidential loser industrial complex uh, this week or next week. Uh, friend of the show, Chris Christie, who has done this show. He's going to launch next Tuesday in New Hampshire. And his whole rap is going to be how anti Donald Trump he is. Mike Pence is going to announce on Wednesday. And then apparently... Uh, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum, who who uh, is just a rich guy who hates abortion, is going to be running as well. What do you make of this? Uh, none of these people, including Mike Pence, who I know is delusional, but none of these people really think they're going to win. Right. Chris Christie yeah, is running for his next that, job. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it is many people running consciously or not for vice president. Uh, Nikki Haley thinks that she's running for vice president as sort yeah, of this Scott is. George H.W. Bush intellectual diplomat person. But in reality, you know, who will be vice president is dependent entirely on Donald Trump's whims. I mean, he's so far ahead right now. He knows he can make these people dance for him. And what will be interesting is seeing them all debate without Trump there. So it'll almost be, uh, you know, a party where Trump looms over the stage without ever being present. And how they respond to that will say a lot. The first Republican debate is going to be in August, Max. Donald Trump did sit out one Republican debate in the 2015-2016 season, but only one. Do you think he's going to have the the discipline to actually stay at home and watch the other five or six debate without him being there to eat the stage? I think he's going to go nuts and maybe he'll skip one again, but I don't see him as a guy who can resist taking the bait. Yeah, I mean, if I was Donald Trump, I wouldn't. It's, it's pretty clear that he owns the floor at these things. I mean, there was his breakout moment in 2016 was at these debates. He has proven he can punch these people in the face in ways they can't come back from. So my guess is he, if, if he gets through the first debate and things aren't moving much, he'll probably jump back in. Because like you said, I mean, the free advertising is just too much. What is Pence doing? Why is Pence doing this? I, I mean, Pence is going to get his ass kicked by margin of error in every poll. I, 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 I mean, I guess he needs a gig, right? That's what this is. Some of these guys are running for cabinet positions. Some of them are running for higher public speaking fees. Some are just saying, hey, world, give me a job on your media channel. I mean, Rick Santorum got on CNN from this. Chris Christie got on ABC from this. But wh what is Mike Pence doing? Trying to get the people who want it's to hang really him to vote for him? It's really tough to parse what he's looking for. Uh, he certainly has no future back in Indiana, and he knows that. Uh, it's one of the reasons he didn't consider running for Senate. Uh, but the only thing I can think of is that he does think that there's some silent majority in the GOP that is is looking for principled leadership. And since they can't find it, they'll go for Mike Pence. I mean, yeah. I just don't see the constituency anymore. And and even if there was, he and Nikki Haley and Chris Christie will will roughly split different parts of that. So, I mean, he can enjoy the one percent, I suppose. <laughs> well, I'm sure he's enjoyed the one percent his entire life, Max Burns. <laughs> what is the best way for our listeners to follow you, sir, in your work? You can check me out on Twitter at TheMaxBurns and also at Substack. I'm at MaxBurns.Substack.com. It is always such a pleasure to have you on our show, Max. Thank you for making us all feel smarter. Thanks a lot. This is SiriusXM. I'm John Fugel saying peace. Peace.